Welcome to the Explorer Poet Podcast, an exploration of the blurry line separating our physical world from our abstract realities. You talk about something called a soul's high adventure. Man is born with a certain functioning. A kind of house of meaning that we dwell in. A clandestine land found underneath your floorboards. These represent a common human inheritance. A common vocabulary of rituals and symbols. Let's let you know where you are. Such and such a hero has done so and so, and that is your what am I going to do, quit? That's not an option. you got to keep on keeping on. Life's a garden, dig it. You make it work for you. You never give up. Follow your bliss. I mean, find where it is and don't be afraid to, to follow it. Conversations and stories, myths and reality, science and the gods we worship, the esoteric and the everyday. Come explore with me. My guest today is Bea Gonzalez, an author, podcaster, lecturer, educator, and one of my favorite social media follows. I'm a fan of Bea because of her passion for teaching people about the importance of a metaphorical approach to life. As an author, Bea's novels have been published in seven countries. Her titles include The Bitter Taste of Time, The Map Maker's Opera, and the recently published Invocation, which is available now. Bea recently launched a podcast called Gatherings with her friend and musician Jay Redelsberger, in which they sit down to discuss subjects they are both passionate about, books and music. I'm already a big fan of the podcast. And whether reading her books, watching her lectures, or listening to her podcast, Bea always has something deep, relevant, and interesting to say. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and hope you do as well. Okay, hi Bea. Hey, hi, Josh. Thanks again for jumping on here with me. This is really exciting. Good. Uh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Um, just to catch up uh, the listeners a little bit about what we were talking about. I originally came across your work on social media. And, and like I was saying, I found it really fascinating because a lot of the content that you share connects with me. But I also just, I really appreciate the beyond the tweets and, you know, you write books and now you're doing podcasts, your ability to share that content that you're passionate about and a lot of it revolves around kind of Carl Jung, depth psychology, mythology, these kind of things, which I love. To me, I kind of wrap it all up in this idea of story and how humans humans use stories to connect with everything and understand everything. But just to get started, like I just want to know for you personally, what got you interested in, in this topic? What got you started from the very beginning? Why are you somebody who's a storyteller? Oh, oh my God. <laughs> I'd have to go so far back on that one. I, I was raised partially in my early life. I was actually, I was born in Spain. I immigrated to Canada. And um, the, the the way I was introduced to story is really through the library. A lot of immigrants will tell you that the one thing you have access to when you go to a new country is a library. And in Canada, we are really blessed that way. And I was I spent most of my childhood inside there. But then what happened is I actually went back to high school in Spain. And what I was really... I became enamored of the way people told stories around the kitchen table there at that time, especially the older generation, my grandparents' generation. And um, really, my first novel evolved from all the stories I heard about the Civil War, about what went down, and how storytelling actually reaches a kind of truth. And I mean, my, my academic background is in history, and I love history. But you reach a level of truth with storytelling that you don't quite make you get to with with uh, history. And I must add that in history, you are storytelling as well, by the way. I mean, you know, you're interpreting things. So uh, whatever vantage point you bring to facts will actually tell the story. But that that's what got me interested. I'm just a reader. I probably like you. I, you know, I, I spend most of my life reading. And uh, even today, that's that's the case. But then my imagination, what I think is really interesting is that I got, you know, if I let the imagination run wild, you know, it, it just creates stories that I find also uh, fascinating. So then adding form to that story is what a novel is fundamentally, right? Right, yeah. The other thing is, are you aware of active imagination and that whole concept in the Jungian uh, universe? I don't know if I've ever done it formally or ever read about it formally, but I'm sure that I practice it because yeah, I'm constantly, sure yeah, I'm constantly imagining active imagination. But um, yeah, help me understand. Okay, well, I, I think I wish more people would actually understand this concept because it is so powerful. And the, the difference in between active imagination as opposed to just imagination, right? And I, I hate to say just imagination because there's no such thing. But active imagination is when you clear your mind through you know any kind of mindfulness practice you might have, uh, and you wait to receive an image, right? And then 
it's a little bit, I don't know if you've ever done hypnosis, but in a hypnotic state, what all you're doing is you're just quieting the critical faculty enough so that you can access maybe a part of you that generates images without the, the critic coming in and slicing away. So that's what you're doing in active imagination. The difference is you take those images seriously, and the way you know you're taking them seriously is that they're affecting you and impacting you emotionally. Right. So the way my novels come to me are like downloads of that kind of thing. They just scenes appear. And and, you know, actually, I was speaking to a friend saying this makes me sound almost insane, but it's almost like parts of you are trying to speak to you um, <laughs> and develop a story. about you. And by the way, this is why I've always told people everybody should write a novel, not for publication, not for anything. It's that the parts that are swimming around inside do really want to be heard. And a novel allows you to do that. I've always said, you don't need a biography of a writer, just read their creative work. You've got everything you need and more than they even know about themselves. That's the scary part, which is always a, you know, a bit scary when you're putting out a novel. So yeah, so that's that's fundamentally what I how I understand it. So I think even the Red Book by Jung is an act, uh, is a novel in its own way. Yes, it is, of course, a work of extended active imagination, but it's also a great novel because it tells a story with development and the, the characters actually develop, the ego develops from the beginning to the end. Um, so I find the whole thing fascinating and I'm particularly fascinated by other peoples in our worlds. I run a group, this is how this all evolved, called the Sophia, well, I call it the Sophia Group, and we've been running for we're close to 15 years. And uh, one of the, the the most enjoyable part of it for me is when we do group dream interpretation, just because that is when the the uh, inner world comes out and we can kind of explore it together. I just find it fascinating. Going back to this idea of, of a novel and everybody should write a novel, uh, I'm in the process of writing my first. And I think it's exactly, it's exactly what you're saying. It's, it's all the I don't know what you want to call them, but they're internal voices. It's all these different parts of you that have experienced things in different ways or stored them, categorized them in different ways. And they're all, they're all like trying to get their point across. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, and, this, and this is why I think, I've, well, first of all, congratulations. I'm glad you're taking that on. Again, I think um, it is its own form of psychotherapy in some ways, yeah, uh, but, but it is, but it also helps others, right? Because other people have different parts of themselves too. And sometimes you're relating to them in that way. One of the things that was great when I published my initial uh, two novels back a while ago is I was invited to do book clubs and it was always interesting to me what, what characters people were noticing. And why? <laughs> because I think, well, that says more about you than it does about the novel. Because, you know, at that point, my novel is really quite boring to me. But people's <laughs> reaction to it in yeah. terms of what they find interesting is so illuminating about, you know, what they what what it says about them and maybe they're in struggle. So it's just it's a great process. That's an interesting thought, because if you take that same experience that you're having, you write a book and then other people are reading it and you turn that around and you look into the past, everything we're reading from the past is that same experience. Absolutely. Where Absolutely. We are, we're looking at what all these people have created, all these stories that, like you said, history isn't really nonfiction. And so it's all these stories that people have pulled forward. The strange thing about being a human is, is that we have to look at it from our, our perspective and not from their perspective. Yes. Yeah, you can't. That's that's the that's the tricky thing. Now, what do you think of the concept? I've been playing around for a long time because I'm really interested in mythology, and I'm interested a lot in archetypal mythology that goes way back. Uh, that's associated first with planetary mythology, that then gets totally projected on everything out there. Do you see what I think I'm saying? But I could be completely deluded and wrong. So that's why I'm asking you. I see it as there's an evolution in the way. Uh, this is why depth psychology fascinates me in the way by looking at our stories in the way we're actually understanding the world. You're seeing sort of, an, and I hate the word evolution because there's so much loaded in there, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. there was a progress of how uh, progress is even worse. Great. Uh, it's the idea of that we're changing as we go and the stories are actually telling us how we are changing. So the storyteller becomes super important in that, in that understanding. What do you think of that? I think you're absolutely right. I actually like the word evolution because it helps me explain the process because because biological evolution gives you the mechanisms because you've got an environment, you've got pressure, competition, and I just see the same mechanisms play out in cultural evolution. And so when I think about stories, that's what I think. I see it all as this giant movement towards something. The The interesting thing that I see about it is how... Well, for, for example, if you look at religions, religions really want to decide that this is the story that's important. And then even in, in our modern day, there are people who are trying to decide which story is the story that needs to win. And I think the interesting thing about evolution is that we have no idea which story is supposed to win. Like, wh what is the story? We're, we're all, 
<laughs> the problem with being a human seems to be that we're all conscious enough to analyze something that we have no control over. Right. Well, what if, what if we put it in a different way and say that it's not what story wins. I, I believe that that may be the problem right there, that we think a story has to win, right? So just just so that I understand you, my my the way I look at it is that the word competition has created a whole bunch of problems in that we think everything has to compete. Yeah. So on the evolutionary side, yes, of course, there's a biological reason for it. But then when you look at this, we can't really apply the same lens, right? So, but but it has been applied for sure. I mean, that's that's what happens, right? That's masculine tr- trick. Yeah. In a way, the stories the stories are trying to survive. Story may be too limited because it really is like cultures. It's like the the story and the ritual and the behavior that comes along with the story. What's fascinating about them, though, is when we talk about evolution, we're talking about these forces. We're talking about them competing within the same species. And and with culture, well, what that allows to happen because you're within the same species is that a group that goes off to this side and a group that goes off to this side becomes a little bit different. They can come back together and blend the gene pool back together. And you see the same thing happen with culture in, in a very rapid, sometimes rapid and very fascinating way. Right. So what I'm interested in generally is what story is appealing to a particular person and why, right? So Paul Tillich, I think, said, uh, your God is your highest concern. So I'm always interested in what people are focusing on. You know, in a personal level and actually on a cultural level, what what's what what are people focusing on? Yeah, what's their what's their current Yahweh? Yeah, yeah, and that that is what changes. And sometimes that's actually um, consciously guided by the media you're exposed to and all sorts of things you have no control over. But still, among people, we notice that some people are really. Uh, I, I I always love finding out about quirks that people have. That yeah. you know, they're somehow in love with a bird, one specific bird, or a specific. <laughs> Uh, happening in history, because it just to me seems like that's what makes people interesting to me anyway, that that is that particular thing built on their history and whatever they want to focus on. And so that that when I look at stories, I think of I want to know what story speaks to you. And that changes dramatically. So, for example, you can look at a religious story in a religious story, you know, whatever. They're all really pointing to the same things. Uh, if you, you look at them in a broader sense. Right. But they're taking different different paths to get there. And so I'm interested in why one path over the other, that's all. Because in Joseph Campbell's kind of view, which I you know, love his work, is that if you are looking at something, it's like a tree and you have various expressions of it, but ultimately we're all trying to get to the same place, then maybe going down some different pathways for, for a while might be interesting to you because it just expands your view, right? And it's not about changing people's minds, it's about saying, okay, well, why? Why understanding things in a bit on a deeper level? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's why I read so much. Probably, yeah. probably you too. Is because yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, books do this thing. I, I, I mean, when I was young, I, I learned to read uh, stories, and then as you get older, you read analysis and and right. what the, what's called nonfiction. Right. Something about the ability to go to a book and then you get to go experience somebody else's story. Right. You get to go experience, right. you know. And I, I, I love Joseph Campbell. I'm in the fourth book of his Mass of God series. Right. It's yes. this amazing experience because you get to walk through and see how the story changes and how it evolves. Yes. But at the same time, you, you uh, and I think he actually does a good job of reminding you of this, that all along we're, we're stuck in our own story, observing somebody yeah. else's story. Yeah, absolutely. I, <laughs> I think I've talked about it a few times on this podcast, but I always think about each individual person as a circle. And if, the, if you just stand there and you turn a circle, that's the circle that you stand in, but nobody else will ever get a stand in that exact point of reference. Right. Which is why it's really important for everybody to actually write that novel, uh, because we'll never get that specific story from anyone else, just because there will never be anybody with the personal history and circumstances where you're at, right? And this speaks to why Jung thought it was really important, uh, the whole individuation process, right? Which where you're revealing parts of yourselves to yourself, really, that's the whole point of that psychology. Um, and why it's important to do that work, because the more you do that, the less likely you're going to locate it in another group, another person. Um, and we know that creates enormous problems. So there's a real ethical responsibility in actually looking at these things. Tell me what story is the one that most compels you? What, what's the what's the current story that has you completely? Because, uh, you know, we go through uh, moments yeah, yeah. as readers. <laughs> what is it? Yeah. Um... Yeah, yeah. The idea that's really capturing your imagination now at this moment, which I know will change. Yeah, it changes over time. But um, to try to sum it up, I would say it's kind of the 
duality versus singularity of existence. Mm-hmm. Really simply, I know this is probably too generic, but really simply the way the East and the West split as far as wanting to progress or wanting to accept. Right. So how do you see that? How do you see? I'm sorry. I'm going to, I'm going to do no, this other okay. thing on you. Susan, Susan asked me the exact same question. So. <laughs> All right. yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, there you are. We're um, forcing you. I hope, I hope we get a, a different answer. That no, would make it it's, interesting. It's fun. No. So, um, the stories that relate to me really simply like the Adam and Eve story. Right. Uh, so I grew up religious my whole life. I grew up LDS or Mormon right. and mm-hmm. uh, I went the whole path until my thirties before leaving religion. Right. And so I came at religion from a very literal perspective mm-hmm. and it wasn't until stepping away from my religion, having a different perspective that I could come at it from like a mystical or psychological perspective. Right. right. And so when that happened, the Adam and Eve story completely transformed for me. Yeah. It went from it went from being uh, the story of the first people that ever existed to being the story of what it is to exist in the West. Right. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. It's an interesting concept. They're specific in the West. Well, the reason I say that is the uh, the difference between Adam and Eve partaking of the tree of good and evil, knowledge of good and mm-hmm. evil, and the Buddha simply partaking of the tree of life. I feel like that's the split. Right, right. But the reason that that's interesting to me is is one that I I have a marriage that operates in a very similar manner. I have an I'm mm-hmm. an Adam and I have an Eve who's constantly right. telling me that there's snakes in the garden. Right. Um, okay. But then also just moving forward, and this actually ties into something I wanted to talk to you about from an episode of your own podcast I listened to. But um, tying that forward into you know I'm I'm in that period of my life where if you're going to go through a union you know, dark night of the soul, then this is it. it. So, (laughs) so, um, I feel like I've navigated a a big chunk of it, but, um, there's this part of me now that recognizes that Adam and Eve, uh, is, is all happening inside of me. And so there's like different levels of, of this story that, that helped me out that helped me understand like what's happening. I think if you frame, obviously I was raised in the Catholic household, being Spanish, that was the the one religion allowed. It, well, what's interesting to me about the Adam and Eve story is that if you look at it the way Jungians look at it, as there is no story unless someone breaks a rule. Why? Why is there no story? Because every time a part of us expands or grows, we do need to transgress the the known boundaries, right? We have to get out of it. And in a way, the Buddha story isn't very different. He has to leave the boundary, the bounded kingdom to get out there and grow. And leaving the garden, I think, is I would equate it to just any time in life you are you're forced to relinquish a firmly held belief about yourself, right? Because something has intruded, come in, and you have to account for it. Now, most people don't, by the way. They just ground their feet in. And they, you know, they decide that's it, I'm holding fast. And that's where you get kind of a fundamentalist view of the world because it's fearful, right? But the growth mentality, which is, I think, what Adam and Eve, the Adam and Eve story to me anyway, read the, read the way I read it, is that it is saying, look, if you are going to evolve in the way that we talked about before, and it's important, that's part of the process, you're going to have to take a step. And part of that is breaking the rule. Yeah. Uh, you know, I used to go and talk to, to uh, you know, art students at a local college about symbolic thinking and metaphorical thinking, because that's really my passion at the end of the day. And one of the things I would say is that young people often get this, they mistake this, right? They try to literalize this breaking away. Uh, There's a concept of killing the father, right? Right. You're killing the father in you, the the structures. You did that actually by stepping away from the Mormon church, right? That's a huge killing of the father right there, because you are going against something that would be very ingrained and had a lot of risk, I'm sure, because, you know, it's family. So that away is the most courageous act anybody can, can make. But those who are true to the individuation process, you cannot not make it. Because if you don't, I think that's where depression lies. I think that's where a whole bunch of other problems lie. And often, honestly, also shadow eruptions where you behave in a secretive kind of crazy way because you're trying to let something that needs to be developed, right, it's coming through the back door. So it's so super, super important, you know? Yeah, I agree. I was just um, writing on this this morning. I'll share. I just wrote a, some notes about it. I'll, I'll share it with you after this. But yeah, uh, the way I was thinking about it was the Garden of Eden has the walls, right? Right. And so each of us, if you're the garden, right? Uh, whenever I think about the dream, I think the dream is the container, and you're the dream. You're the content. And so the 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 wall holds us. But the issue with the wall is that it was put up before the garden really fully grew. And so every garden is going to get to a point where you have to decide, are you going to go beyond the walls? Are you going to stay inside the walls? And for those fundamentalists that you're talking about, 
the focus becomes the walls. Their walls become really nice walls, beautiful walls, tall and safe and shiny. But they they block out everything that needs to get in, and uh, the the garden inside suffers. Yeah, absolutely. That's a perfect way to put it, you know. And and it is, I think, the courageous. That's the heroic part of us because there is a danger once you leave that walled environment, you're going to encounter some really dark stuff. So I th- I think it does take a lot of courage, and I'm always really intrigued by people who find it somehow without the support of family, without the support of partners, that somehow they know instinctually, I have to leave. I do have to leave this place. It's it's a great story. It's a really interesting one because I think most people who grow up in an environment where eventually they need to leave, I don't think they're aware that they need to leave for a very long time. Uh, Rudyard Kipling said that the pack is the wolf and the wolf is the pack. So if you grow up in the pack, how are you going to know anything but the pack? Because that's you. It's very challenging. So you have to, I think Joseph Campbell, said, or maybe this is Carl Jung in his autobiography, he talks about you have to step outside because you have to have an outside perspective to challenge yeah. the going narrative. Right. Yeah. And interesting enough for me, you know, talking about Adam and Eve from a literal perspective, uh, it was my wife who, who kind of started that process for me because she was kind of like, this isn't, you know, we were starting to have kids and she's like, this yeah. isn't really where we want to be raising kids. Want to go. So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, it's a it's, that's interesting. That's an interesting recreation of the myth. But uh, obviously, I mean, I think of them. Everything is grand narrative. I could argue, well, you chose that wife because some part of you knew that you needed to step outside. And sometimes this this partner, what we're attracted to, is are those latent, you know, parts of ourselves. So we end up with people that that help us. Hopefully, sometimes it doesn't work that way, but hopefully. Um, so there is. It's all you still. Like one of the things I love about doing dream interpretation with my group is it teaches you that you're the whole thing. You're the, the, you know, you're the every person on the stage, you're in every act, you're the only person that could be in, in every act. And that's why when you're interpreting a dream, the biggest mistake people make is to literalize it, right? They, they have a dream about their neighbor, they think it's the neighbor. Well, there is an objective reality, but the deeper level is, well, what part of you is exactly like that neighbor or behaving in a way that shows up in this dream? Once you start applying that to everything in life, the whole world kind of changes. You just realize, wait, this is this is something that's caught. The world is animated and it's constantly speaking to me. Do I want to listen or do I want to just shut it off? And, you know, you can decide. That's up to you. That's uh, definitely nobody's going to force you. But in my experience of having worked with these people or in my own experience of having gone through this myself, life is so much richer when you step outside of the wall. And uh, yeah, you do suffer. Uh, some things are hard, but I can't even imagine. I can't imagine erecting the walls again. I mean, it it is... Pure-based consciousness, really. Yeah. Well, I think that there's a part of the process that precludes you from going backwards. Unless there was something serious that happened in your life, something seriously traumatic or damaging. But, And I heard, I've heard i heard people say it this way. There's a, a man, I can't remember who, who he was, but I, he's, he was talking about this idea of moving into states of consciousness, states of awareness. And he was basically saying, he said, there's just a couple of rules. Once you put on the glasses, you can't take the glasses back off. And the only other rule is you can't make anybody else wear the glasses. That's the perfect two rules. <laughs> I especially like the latter one, because I think this is what we, we can become proselytizers very quick because you think you've found the path. <laughs> but one, one thing about even, even when a path seems like, oh yeah, you're leaving the wall, but then suddenly. So one thing that's really been interesting about having a group for this long period of time is people find it somehow. Uh, I found a couple of people through social media who are in Toronto, so they joined. But this is a weird thing, but people will join the group and we need that person at that given time. It's a bizarre thing. It's almost like that person has appeared and it becomes a rich experience for all of us. Somehow we called that person into there because they, they had either a story, usually a story because we discuss our inner lives that we all needed to hear. And eventually, and this is really weird, we end up having each other's dreams, if that makes sense. In other words, there, someone can relate a dream and all of us can relate to that very specific thing that has been dreamed about. And that's what makes it so interesting, connecting through the inner as opposed to the outer world. We don't discuss our families. We'll discuss our job. It doesn't matter. Our inner world is so much more um, potent. And, and that's just a great thing. I can't tell you how, how, for me anyway, how exciting it's been. Yeah. This group, I'm really curious about it because I don't, I don't know much about it, but is this a... Um... What type of a group is it? Is this a, it's not a clinical group. It's more of a, no, 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 no. It's, it's not a clinical space that, group. Yeah. And then the first thing we say is we are not a therapy group because <laughs> I'm not a therapist. And I'm, I, I, I actually detailed this in that, the latest episode I did with Jay about the Sophia group, because we're doing our first public outreach after 15 years. So basically a my midlife crisis consisted of me having published two novels with a big five publisher and was, you know, selling in other countries and blah, 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 having a bit of a, 
a rethink about what am I publishing? Why am I doing this? And at the time, I guess it seemed a bit arrogant to people. Well, look, you've been so lucky, you've been published and blah, blah. Uh, but it, something just didn't actually connect anymore to me. So I, I thought I, I, and at the time I was doing, I was in Jungian analysis and I had the, I had played with the idea of becoming a Jungian analyst, but I had very small children and you know how taxing that is. And, um, and you know, I, I just, it didn't fit with my life, but also the analyst I was with explained how much, <laughs> what the political situation around these groups were. And she said, Bea, Really, honestly, you've been in analysis with me for a couple of years. And what I notice is that you come in here always wanting to talk about these ideas. And what you need is to form a group mm. that allows you to discuss this, right? That's so fascinating. Like, sorry to cut you off, but it's so fascinating because everybody needs their thing in life. Right. They need to go find that thing. Mm -hmm. But then there are certain people whose thing is finding the thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Yes. I never thought about it that way, but absolutely. Anyway, she said, form the group. And then, so what do you do? Right. Here I am. I'm a young, you know, my mother, I'm a mother to young children, you know, so like, so believe it or not, I, I started, um, I would go, my kids were really active in soccer here. So I would go to these practices and I'm a talker. So I'd start talking to people and I started feeling my way out. Who wants to talk about something deeper? So I would introduce something about, well, look, I've been, I've been thinking about this and I'd say the majority would kind of walk away or, you know, change the subject and talk about their kids. But uh, slowly I started meeting people and even within my own circle that were already there who were willing to come and discuss Jung at first. And then, you know, we went we went way beyond Jung. In 20, I guess uh, about 10 years ago or so, I brought in James Hollis, who I really admire, to Toronto to work with my group. And he gave a talk at UFT and then we, we spent a weekend with him. Uh, and it just, it, it was a process of all of us kind of getting to know ourselves through these books. Now, I'm the reader, so I'm the one that's basically summarizing a lot of this because nobody's reading as much as I do. That's basically what I do all, all day. But yeah, no, it was a conversation. It was con the conversation is so important. Uh, you know, the, the other thing is I was involved with a, a group uh, called Classic Pursuits, and they they did um, a seminar series here at UFT where uh, we would have, you know, 10 different seminars going on. And one would be on, I would, the, one, the first one I led was on Don Quixote. Next to me was some guy dealing, uh, running a seminar on Bach's music. Uh, next to him was, you know, something completely different. Anyway, it, what would happen is after we were each in our individual meeting spaces, we come and talk, right? And what was great about that model is that it's a Socratic method. There's no leader. We all kind of lead each other through the text. That's what happens in this room when I when I have a meeting. We're discussing. There's no sage anywhere. We're not teaching. We're trying to discover through our lives and through our inner worlds and through whatever we're discussing, what's going on. And so, yeah, no, it's worked for 15 years. And then people started coming Someone would bring somebody else. And, uh, you know, then well, because my social media got quite active there, I started being contacted by people. Can I join your group? And so a couple of people came through there and now we're too big. Like, I mean, I can't get any more people in. <laughs> so we're going out. <laughs> yeah, it sounds awesome. It sounds like a fun time. I do something similar. I don't have a group, but I do. That's that's what I do with a number of my friends here. Like when we get together, that's what we do is we talk. You know, what are you reading? What are you thinking? Yeah. 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 Well, that is a group. <laughs> the, only, the only difference, <laughs> it's the only just difference not I would say. I guess. Exactly. Yeah. We, we, I formalized it, I registered it because I wanted to bring people like James Hollis to town. And, um, and you know, we just wanted to make it a little bit, uh, but but it really is really an informal gathering of people who are seekers, who are just more, more interested in talking about what's not talked about most of the time on. That's why I started my Twitter uh, account and any other account I have. It was a way to, look, there's a lot of noise. Everybody's talking about one thing. I want to just point people to other things that maybe they might want to look at, right? I happen to read a lot. So I'll just extract some of these quotes from people who have made me think. And hopefully that adds to the conversation in a different way. That's all, you know? Yeah. Well, I hope you don't mind, but I piggybacked your your social media model because that's that's oh, what I great. do too. I My yeah. current life is this. I read and I write and I try to do podcasts. And so there's this desire I've always had to have like a library of quotes, library of like references, and now with like technology, it's okay, I can just do that. I can create a thing on my phone and then all the content is there to share on social media. It's so important because you may not realize it, but you are adding to a certain different conversation, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And that's the best we can do because, you know, there's a lot of political noise. There's a lot of noise, I would call it. If you can add, if you can bring it back. So here's how I define, let's see if this makes sense to you. So this is how some, we had to, we had to articulate what the Sophia project was about. And this is the way I look at it. And it was based on a question that was asked of me on Instagram, right? I quoted something to the effect of, well, you know, a lot of what we do is projection. So we have to recollect it and, and analyze it. And somebody asked 
a very honest question. Look, I have a really lousy neighbor. That neighbor's constantly creating horrible problems for me. Is that my projection? So my answer after I thought about it is like, look, level one, there's an objective reality to everything. You have a lousy neighbor. You can do certain things to make it better, but there is something beyond that you cannot do, right? Let's just accept that that is life. And the Stoics developed a wonderful way of approaching this is which half of life is accepting the unacceptable. That's just the way it is, right? But you do what you can in that sphere. I would say that on a political level or whatever level, you do what you can on that level one. Level two is you take what's happening to you and you ask a question. You say, hey, where might I be behaving like this neighbor is behaving to me? Not always exaggerated because clearly this was a bad neighbor, but maybe is there something that I'm doing that is creating the, uh, you know, this kind of discomfort in someone else? Now, number three is what we do at the Sophia Cycles, which is what makes me really excited. Number three level is, as I think, the ultimate question, what part of me am I doing this to? In other words, and how am I behaving to a part of myself? And we've all met people who are really creative, but, oh, I can't, I can't be creative. I can't afford it or whatever it is. That's the question that I think depth psychology takes you because it admits you are not one, you are many. Mm. And those many, one of those could revolt against you. And then you create, uh, you create a very bad scenario. So can we understand through questioning through, and, and, and that way you pick up clues from the world and you say, okay, why am I reacting to this? What's happening here? And bring it back to what part of me is doing yeah. the reaction? Because yeah. it's really surprising. It may not be the whole thing, right? It may just be that there's a part of you that is unlived or feels cheated, or there's always some something that's resonating. Because, you know, if you give two people or three people the same circumstance, they're not going to react the same way. That's your clue that there is something in you that is for some good reason. But I don't look at it as a problem at that point. I can reframe and say, okay, this is asking something of me beyond level one and two, which are, you know, um, so that's what the way I try to look at the world, the number three world. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, that's really helpful. I think that in a strange way, there's there are these ideas that float around and then you kind of dismiss them as childish ideas. Things like, you know, you get what you give kind of things. You can easily dismiss like, oh, I didn't deserve that neighbor. Right. I didn't, you know. But then this interesting thing about Carl Jung is this uh, method of actually tying causalities, actually tying things together. I look at Carl Jung as like this model. It's like a modality for understanding but I have a question for you about it being being so like so involved or or having you know written and participated in this group and and now doing the podcast like obviously this is very interesting for you it's you're passionate about it mm-hmm. there's this question though about and Carl Jung wrestled with it himself this idea of his experience versus empirical evidence right right and the question I have for you is obviously this is all interesting to you from an academic perspective and from, uh, you know, you, you like words and you like symbols and metaphors. But what about from an experiential perspective? Does Carl Jung speak to you because you have these same experiences that he has that he speaks of? Even without the empirical evidence, do you experience it personally? Well, I think that's his whole point, that he he understood that to his definition of that is, if I experienced it, then that is proof of something. And I think people don't want to, you know, because oh, let's do study A. And that's, but a lot of what he's talking about is very hard to. So let me put it to you this way. One of the phrases that goes to my head all the time is the cure for longing is longing itself, right? That's something that really speaks to me. One of the things that was really interesting after I left doing an analysis, she retired and she said, you don't need doing an analysis. She said, I want you to go do body work. And I thought, well, what's that? You know, what would you? she goes, this will this will speed up your understanding of everything. And she was dead right. And the and people kind of, you know, when they, they think of the word body work, they think, um, you know, Pilates or yoga or whatever. I, this is not the way I understand it. And let me see if I, I'm making myself intelligible because maybe I don't understand it properly. It's always good to talk to other people. My understanding of body work is cutting the mind and feeling the feelings. Okay. This is what I think Jung also meant by the feeling state, which has also been misinterpreted because the words are just lousy. They just get complicated. So can you stay with a feeling state like longing and not located in an object? Just stay with the feeling. Can you stay with anger and not located on an end? That feels really bad. I don't know if you know if you've ever done this, but when you're in a rage and you have to stick with the feeling inside, it's a great thing to teach young kids, by the way, then it doesn't land anywhere. And so that's the part that I think has to go with the academic side, the empirical, you know, the the words. Without that, I don't think you have a whole system. It's just as important, if not more. Yeah, that's interesting. The way you were talking about this reminds me of the pot, the episode I was listening to. It's episode four where you were talking about romantic love. Yes, yes. It's funny. I, I, just as an aside, by the way, I have noticed that I think I say that in that episode every time. 
every time I do anything, I quote anybody on romantic love, you will not believe the pushback that happens. I just watch it. I think this is so interesting. There is so much investment in that concept. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. The, and it's it's not good. Yeah. It, it, I want to go there, but real quick, the, yeah. uh, be, let's yeah. talk about, just to finish up on body yeah. work. I think I understand what you're talking about because if I had to explain my experience with, with my body, uh, I grew up in a religion, so I, I thought my body was a bad thing my whole life. Not consciously, but that was the message and that was how I felt. Every, every emotion that was uncomfortable, any response that was uncomfortable, any kind of situation I went into that I didn't, it all felt like bad. It felt like the wrong thing. And so for a long time, I, I was just really good at avoiding any kind of, I was just numbed out. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I did a really good job of either ignoring or dissociating from my, my body. And then what I experienced was uh, maybe similar to you is I, I didn't do depth psychology. I just did like behavioral therapy and, and it just kind of opens you up to some of your own stories. But then once the story is there, there's also the emotion of the story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then that's when I realized that I had emotions. <laughs> that was like, the, <laughs> wow, that was the big clue. So now I think w- for me, what body work is, I do, I usually do it in the mornings when I get up or anytime I'm just experiencing something that's overwhelming, just like you're saying, I have to literally just sit there and feel it and not let myself tell myself what I'm feeling. You almost have to sit there and let the emotion sit long enough for the emotion to put the thought into your head of what's going on. And once that happens, it's, uh, it's, it wraps up much quicker if you can just sit there and experience it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I just lost a dog and anybody who's had a pet is it's a horrible traumatic experience. And I remember reading somewhere, the one way to process grief is to really get into the grief, you know, don't go off, try to think of something else. So I really got into the grief and it was, it's so painful. I can see why people avoid their bodies because if you're really cutting the words and going inside, but then I remember a story Houston Smith told. You know who Houston Smith, the scholar of religions? Um, he 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 had a horrible, he lived into his 90s, but late in his life, in his 80s, uh, and he was a Baptist all of his life, and he was like a little bit like um, Joseph Campbell in that he explored many religions and brought them all together. Late in his life, he was hit with a double whammy. His daughter died of uh, cancer, and then his granddaughter, daughter of that daughter, was murdered on a campus. And journalists asked him, how can you believe in God? after this happened, since you've always been. And he goes, oh, I believe in God more than ever. But one thing he explained is that after this happened, he sat in a room for six months and he just wept and he just processed. He didn't go out, try to you know, act like nothing's wrong. I mean, I come from a culture where there's a lot of wailing around death. It's understood. This is hard, right? Yeah. This is not something you have tea around. And he did that. And, and it always stuck in my head as a story that we always avoid most of what's hard by you know, through any form of anesthetic. And sometimes it's another story and some, you know, whatever. Um, And so I think part of it through the body work, what it's taught me is it's better to go in there because you do actually process grief and a whole bunch of other emotions a lot better. And you can move on without getting stuck in what could have been or this or that, or the stories that are then made to try to get you back into the grief state so you can process. That's the whole point of it being there. So anyway, I think everybody should do it. Yeah. Yeah, I think grief, for me personally, grief, uh, learning how to cry was a huge thing. Or just just crying for the first time, experiencing it for the first time. Yeah. It was huge. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like a process. But um, to jump from that over to the thing you always get pushed back on, uh, a romantic love. Oh, yes, romantic love, yes. This all ties into, it's just funny that I, I, I listened to this maybe, I, I listened to your episode maybe yesterday or the day before, and it all lands because I'm reading, um, I'm reading, like I said, Joseph Campbell's Masks of God. And I'm in the fourth book, which is the modern kind of creative artist. And it, it's a lot about romantic love because that's the evolution of the story at that point. And so then we live in a world that's the product of that product. And we now have romantic love as this disney version of happily ever after. Uh, you know, it may have been easier just to have the story remain that you have the romantic passion experience and then you both have to die because <laughs> that would have been a little bit easier than what we got in our day. But um, I want to I hear your thoughts on this because uh, if romantic love is a myth, then it's really easy to see what that literal, like what we want that literal version to look like. But then what does it look like on all the other versions? Like how does, how's this allegorical to us as individuals? How do we frame our morality? Mm. How do we see this as a process with, that happens within ourselves, and how do we grow through it? Well, those are a lot of big questions. 
So here's what I would say. I don't think it's a myth. I think, you know, attraction exists, right? You are attracted to people. Now, Von Franz had a great way of understanding this. If you don't project that kind of stuff, you never get to know yourself. The first way, and think about it in the Adam and Eve story too, that everything is always two, division of two. In order for me to know something about myself, I first need to locate it in someone else. And that's where attraction comes in. You know, it's like, a, it's like the Cupid bow goes out there, go, oh, that's this person. Well, no, at the beginning, that person is your creation entirely, right? And I think people want to stay in that initial thing because what they're in love is with their version of themselves, really, that has landed there. Of course, that will die once you pull that back. You realize when you're living with a human being that they are not who you want them to be or thought they were, they are who they are. Now, that's the beginning of a true relationship, right? Because then you can be human with each other. But I don't think there is a willingness, and this is where I get pushback to go to that phase. It's like, well, romance can exist forever. Well, what are you defining as romance? The ability to be in the dark? Because being in the dark isn't really what you probably want, right? So so the way that I think, and, and in that episode, I referred to a lot of people who whose theories I've, I've taken to, to, I've used to understand it, and then just by my own experience of this whole thing. So let's say you go through your entire life, you may be married, those projections may still land. I mean, that's, that's the human nature trying to understand itself. But the difference is you don't have to act on them. When, when, you, when you recognize the projections happened, you recognize your human A and B and you think, oh, that's, you have a, almost an um, attitude of curiosity. Why? What's happening here, right? And I mean, part of it is like imprinting, right? Like the, the, something and people will, will attract them to you. But it's really a bigger question. But what I really like is two things. One of them is what uh, Robert Johnson said in We, and, and also I'll tie in to Joseph Campbell, because I think he was really <laughs> the guy that really made me understand it in a much bigger way in one of the lectures he gave. So Robert Johnson says, look, we no longer have a belief in God in the West, right? So where does God last land? Well, it lands in, in uh, the human being, right? But where else are you going to look at it? Because we all have the longing to transcend. We all have that longing to connect. And so it's got to land somewhere. And it's easy. You can sell a lot of movies. You can sell perfume. You can sell cars. So we're going to give you the biggest anesthetic there is. And we'll put you to sleep. And in one way, that's what's happening. I, I know people get angry when I say that, but that's what I see. You know, uh, you wouldn't have a movie industry that is so focused on that whole subject if it didn't sell. Oh, and by the way, in, in fiction, women's uh, romance stories outsell practically everything else. So there is a desire. But if you're looking at it on a higher level, right, isn't it just a, a version of a desire to connect with yourself? But if you're not taught how to do that, then it's going to land always. But the fact is, it will always exist. It's not going to disappear tomorrow. It's just how do we act, and you said the word, ethically and responsibly to ourselves and to others. It's to understand this is something about me that I need to investigate in some way or another. I always tell, there's a story Marion Woodman, the um, Jungian analyst told that I really, it always sticks in my head about a, an analyst she had who was a painter. And she had a very good marriage, no children, very good marriage. But one day she became obsessed with a man's blue eyes, believe it or not, in a cafe. She would go to the same cafe and be obsessed with this man. Eventually has an affair. And eventually, you know, the marriage survives it when she sort of, the, the affair plays itself out. And her point was that what she discovered is what she was really trying to get to is a part of herself that was going to paint in a very different way. And instead of taking that leap, what she'd done is she'd gone through, and it, it actually involved the color blue, which is why the blue eyes actually came up. And I thought, well, that's a brilliant example of taking something, a directive inside, not understanding it. So you project it on someone else. And in her case, her marriage survived. It couldn't have, but that's the way it unfolded. So if you go with a, a level of curiosity, I think then you can understand yourself. But the, but the uh, Joseph Campbell takes it to a totally different level. And I love this. Uh, in one of his lectures, it was one of those things where I was listening to, I had to stop. I went, oh my God. He basically argues that the West, and because you're looking at West and East, I think you'll appreciate this, needed to have that happen. They needed those romance, chivalric romances of the Middle Ages to, to occur so that you could develop a personal ego. Because the one thing about the West is we could choose our partners, right? Uh, whereas in Eastern cultures, you were still having the monetary, the cultural, the cultural range of marriage for you. So it's an incredible act of courage to say, no, I will go with that person and not the one you're choosing mm -hmm. for me. And he thought this actually, there was a line from this to the scientific revolution, to a whole bunch of things that happened in the Western psyche. That did not take place. And I thought that was mine. I don't know if you find it as mind blowing as I did, but I thought, yeah, this, this makes this kind of makes sense. I do think it's mind blowing. I think about it like we were saying, uh, it's the evolution of a story. It's like the evolution of understanding in people's minds. And there was something about the Christian religion, the Christian God that forced a lot of people to hide a lot of parts of themselves. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so just like you're saying, like they, the new myth that arose that evolved out of that was in search of the, it was like this need to find more of ourselves. And then it gets literalized into, you know, Romeo and Juliet or yes, Tristan, yes. And, you know. Yes, yes. And actually the Tristan and Isolde is a great myth. I mean, I happen to love the opera, so that that's one of the things. But but what, what's uh, what's really great about that myth is that there is a note that's given to you by the pe- the, 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 the myth maker or the people who recount the story. Because there's so many different versions of, of what the myths, right? That's what makes them a little bit challenging, but also interesting. And that's that there's a second Isolde. And you, you have to think that is telling you something. Why is there a second Isolde, the Isolde of the White Hands? Because the Isolde of the White Hands is the human person you can have a real relationship with. But mm. Tristan dies. Why? Because he's not mature enough to realize that that Isolde, the higher Isolde, is the one that's in him. And that he has to connect to that and maybe live with the Isolde of the White Hands. Because if you think about it, any story that mixes you up by giving you the same name for the same woman or for a woman with two parts already is telling you it's divided. Your own psyche is mm. divided between the human relationship and the one that you traditionally would find in a connection to God, which no longer is facilitated by an outside structure for, for many of us. But what Jung said, and I think it's so important, is that really what the modern human has to do is what you did, which is to walk out of that forest where the structure protects you and find your own individual path. And in finding that path, you're illuminating for others, not your path, because your path is your path, but you're illuminating that there is a way, right? That you don't have to be bounded, that there is a way that, I mean, would you want to, I know you can't go back anyway, but could you even imagine your life had you not stepped out of that uh, walled garden? I mean, no, right? I know plenty of people that chose not to. And so I can look around and say, oh, that's what it would have been like. That's it. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. what it would have been like. Yeah. Well, I, I like Carl Jung because he gives us a model of, of the human mind, the human psyche. I think in our modern day, we may even have a better model because we went and invented computers and we basically just projected our own model onto a machine. And so when you look at a, mach- a computer, you see all these parts and these components. Right. And you see that there's a body, the the hardware, and there's an operating system, which is like the conscious self coming online to manage every, or like the, at least the mind. And the interesting thing about it is that a computer can only do what it's either been programmed to do, or when it receives new information, then it can operate on that new information. And so, so when I think about humans and this evolution of the story, I think about us arriving at a point where we have too much information to share a cohesive story. Hmm. That's an interesting concept. This idea that there is no consistent God for us to worship anymore. We don't all kneel down and pray to the same God anymore because we know too much about history, science, that God, his religion. And so from a Joseph Campbell perspective, we're at a point in history where the mythologies are all going to become these individual mythologies, where we are all a bunch of little computers And the only way for us to get to the closest thing to correctness or truth or the best path is it's not actually because we all have a bunch of egos that have evolved. It's actually because we have more and more information coming in that allows, whether it's the subconscious or the conscious ego, like working together, it just allows that self to suddenly have better information. Okay. So, so let me reframe that in my mind to understand it. So to me, there are still stories that will bring people out and where they can connect. We're, what we're looking for is connection. That's that's the ultimate goal, right? So even though we are coming uh, from individual perspectives, given you know whatever information download we have, at the end of the day, we're all doing the same thing. We're trying to connect to other people because that's why we're here. That's my fundamental understanding of why we're here. And this is what Jung labeled the feminine and said was absent. And of course, then it got it got projected always onto gender, which is a huge mistake because you are as feminine. We all have these same the same qualities. I think words are a really big trap. So my view of it is that I'm always interested in what story, what narrative is calling out to people. So look at a movie, right? Avatar. Suddenly, I mean, I remember the first Avatar. People went insane, right? Everybody was uh, there was uh, no stays. I guess they were at chat rooms and people are talking about it and missing the blue people. And that to me seemed more. Fa- I was more fascinated at the reaction to that movie than the actual movie itself, right? Because the show to me, it was pointing out something that a lot of young men, especially, were connecting to. They couldn't connect in their own lives, right? I believe those kind of stories will be, that's why film is so important. That's why Joseph Campbell, I think, gave such privilege to the artist so much. Because in a way, the artist is presenting the cohesive mm. narrative that might 
people might be responding to. So I don't, I, I look for people's reactions more than I look at the actual movie because I'm more interested, you know, why are, why are so many men really in love with Star Wars? I mean, there's a huge, you know, huge group, not only men, women too, but there seems to be a real, and it's almost like, well, this is a mythology that, that they can connect to, they can understand, like Lord of the Rings, right? Uh, you know, I always think of Tolkien and thinking this is still the writer that outsells everybody even today, right? Why? Because he fashioned a mythology that includes all of the mythologies, in my view. In a way, it is a personal mythology that brings in so many other things that we are connecting to. So I think there is, I think no matter how much information you give to people, we're still going to gravitate towards the grand stories that remind us of why we're human and that make us feel. Because it's feeling we're trying to get to, right? That's yeah. all. I, I think I agree with what you're saying. So let me maybe clarify. So what I'm saying is, because uh, if you look at, in the past, there was this this single deity or God that everybody worshipped. Right this right. just uh, god or yahweh or elohim or whatever you want to call him and um that seems like the, the you know nietzsche said that god was dead in europe and i think god is getting pretty close to being dead in the united states as well i actually think the, i think world war ii actually helped god stick around a little bit longer but mm -hmm. th that's a side note right. but i just think that we don't have this cohesive god anymore so there there are stories that are moving there are always stories that we'll connect with but there's not going to be a new I can't imagine a new God evolving out of this God. Well, not in the traditional sense. Let me pay devil's advocate because Nietzsche wasn't saying that the actual God had died. It was the concept we right. had of God that was dead, right? Okay. The, the story. So the, concept, the story. The story around yeah. that God. So we can't envision what the new story, but but I kind of like what Jung said, which is the story is going to be created by the individual through the individuation path. At the end of the day, you know, archetypes exist because we all connect to this, this uh, same things. So they, they saw it as landing in the artist because that, those are the only people that are a bit of a head, some of them anyway, of consciousness. I could think of James Joyce. You think of people that are connecting in ways that most of us have no access to. So they're a bit ahead of things. So that's why I look at the artist as a possibility. Um, and not only artists, you know, because that, that and everybody's an artist, right? I hate that word because it kind of implies only two people can do this. But there seems to me that that's why I do look at the story, but no, we won't have, but that maybe that's not what, 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 that's not the face of development we're in. Maybe we're in a different form of development, right? But we will need the need though, right? We will still, do you think that the longing for that connection is gone? Because I don't think so. No, that, I don't. I think the longing, I mean, obviously I experienced the longing, so I don't think it's dead, but I think that there's not going to be a cohesive answer like there has been in the past. That's all I'm saying. I think that everybody's going to have to figure out I think that we're all going to have to scientifically get to a point that the Buddha got to <laughs> where he yeah, said, it's like, yeah, Hey, yeah, this right. is existence. This is it. There, there actually is no story. There actually is no story. We're all just here. Yeah. There isn't a story. No, I mean, there's many stories and they're all, uh, uh, they're all layered on each other. And anybody who's done, who's done mindfulness meditation knows that at the end of the day, the stories <laughs> all dissolve and it's all, but however, yeah. I mean, I, I don't, one of the things I love about Jung and the people that are in depth psychology is the idea that we're both and and not the either or. In other words, I believe both can actually be true. Mm. You can have the stories and you can also have connection to that depth. And in all traditions, even from since the beginning of time, there have been, you know, like in Eastern tradition, there is the practice, just like there's ritual in the Western tradition, and we we play and and you know with our rosaries and we do it. But there's also the stories. the the best The best uh, things we have are the stories in the Bible, right? So I think they can coexist. I just think they're going to be different. And I think because we're now connected to so many people in so many different parts, they feel foreign and a bit threatening sometimes to us. But I'm actually, I'm a, I'm a horrible poly. I mean, I'm so optimistic. I think, look, at the end of the day, first of all, I accepted it because the idea of resistance is stupid. Whatever happens, you've got to, you've got to accept, right? But on a second level, I'm kind of curious as to why I, I try to maintain um, just a nerve curiosity. What's going to come out of this? What's soup? You know, this is a soup. And, you know, we are going to get many different things, but I'm kind of excited about it. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> I've been lost in my own fantasies here. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. If, uh, I don't know if excited is the right word for me. I'm, I'm interested. Like I, I'm very yeah. curious to see Yes. because I do feel like however much I'm trying to add to the subconscious or the collective unconscious through my Twitter profile and this podcast and whatever I'm doing. Yeah. It's, it's uh, we're all just kind of along for the ride to see what the heck happens. <laughs> but but I will quote Margaret Mead, right? Who said that uh, the only thing that ever changed anything was a group of concerned individuals sitting, she called them citizens, sitting around uh, talking about these issues. So what you're doing may seem small, but it's actually huge because what you're adding is a different type of conversation. And I really think that's what's needed. And you also said a word that I'm, I think has been my saving grace, no matter what happens, curiosity. Right. If we can teach, that's what I try to do with my kids, right? If you can teach them to be curious, they will never 
ever shut yourself down because there's always something to investigate, right? And also to the second thing, I think, and you know, I don't know how, how old your kids are, but the fact that we can educate kids to listen to their bodies, to honor the fact that, yeah, things are always okay. They're not. And it's okay to be full of grief. You know, I have two young men, you know, they're not, they're, I had two boys. And uh, that's something that was really important for me to keep repeating. This is not about, you know, um, conforming. And of course, once they get to the teenage years, the, the peer group comes in, but it is the idea of listen to your body and honor that, you know, you're not always going to be uh, the happy about everything. You're not, sometimes grief is necessary, even about the passing of things that seem small to other people. So I think a combination of all these things, but the important thing for me, and I think this is what you're doing, right? Is a conversation. <laughs> Don't stop talking yeah. about this yeah, yeah. because then the other voices are going to come in and they're going to convince us we should all kind of, you know, arm ourselves, our houses and protect ourselves and never leave. And that's the very def definition of, not non-evolution, you're regressing at that point because you'd refuse to help the story come along, right? So that would be my thing. So I'm not excited as much as still curious. Where's the exciting, you know? Well, it's definitely <laughs> fascinating. It's fun. It's like, it's also just really interesting. The more you read Carl Jung, the more you think about these things or, you know, meditation's huge. The more you just experience what you're reading, then the more you see how these same things are operating in yourself, in others, and in the world in general, it's fascinating. And then I think maybe the spiritual side of it or the, for me personally, I have, because earlier you were talking about uh, there was God and then we, we kind of narrowed God down into some other categories. Mm -hmm. But a big one for me is connection. And then a big one for me is potential. And I think that the human species, like we still have a huge ability to connect and we still have, we have so much potential. I totally agree with both of them. But I do think that what Jung pointed out is that we were valuing. And do you know the work of Ian McGilchrist? No, I don't. Well, he he is a psychiatrist, also has a PhD in, in literature. So he's able to bring two worlds together. But he posits the idea of brain lateralization on a much more sophisticated level. And what he when he talks about the right brain, which sees the left brain, that the left brain doesn't see the right brain, which is what's interesting about it. He talks about that the right brain is the holistic brain. And the left brain is what we developed uh, over the last 2000 years. And it focuses, think of a bird, a bird has to focus one eye on the food it's trying to grab and one eye on the predator. And to a certain degree, what we've privileged in his conceptualization is that left brain, that focus and not the whole story. And I think connection for me is that whole story. And so that's why stories matter because they connect things that, you know, and you do need that particular worldview at some points, right? You need to, in science, absolutely. If you don't do that, you, you can't do the work. But at some point, we also need the other part, the, the larger vision. But imagine living, as he says, in a world where the left brain doesn't see the right brain and it's convinced of the rightness of its vision. He says that's the big problem. And it's an incredible, I mean, you don't even have to read his books. They're incredibly long. He has been interviewed maybe, you know, hundreds of times on this issue. And I just think, yeah, this is, and I think he's speaking about what Jung is speaking, although he's using uh, terminology that's different because Jung saw that that was the problem too. How do we connect people back to yeah. themselves? And that's what religion actually means, right? To, to connect yourself back. And I think story is one of the big ways. You see it in kids. They really respond to story. They want to be told the same stories over and over again as they, their brain connects what's going on. And by the way, you know, romantic love is a story. It's, it's a story. What, how could it not be a story? How do you how do you get people to sit in the movie theater and pay a whole bunch of money to see these things? Because you're telling a story that's compelling. It speaks to part of your brain. So what I would say to people is ask yourself, you know, what are you really trying to connect with? See, I find that's what I find interesting, you know, because if you answer honestly, uh, yeah, it's an, it enriches your life. I really do think so. Yeah, I think so, too. I think that it's again, it's it's uh, layered where you can find a way to connect with a lot of different things. But when you figure out how to connect with those parts of you that have been asking for that connection. It's a huge leap forward. You know, I'm going to add something David Tacey said. David Tacey was a scholar who looks at Jung not from the therapeutic angle, but from the scholarly angle. And he's very much involved in, it's, he's Australian. And he said, you know, if people could be convinced that, you know, suicide is a good example, that you're not trying to kill the whole, you're trying to kill a part. Mm. And if you understand that that part needs transformation, needs to be addressed, then there wouldn't be that. And that's because we don't even teach people that there is the possibility that some part of you is calling out for help and it's been mistaken for the whole. That's like a left brain example in a big way, you know, that really opened my eyes because I thought we're not even addressing this issue in the right way. Yeah. I've never even thought about it in that sense. Yeah. It's very clear. Yeah. 
as far as the story goes, there is a lot of positivity in like what you're saying. This this new thing where I, as a, as a young boy, was never taught that my body was to be respected or, or you know, in it, it, my body, when I say like my emotions and my feelings, like those things were to be ignored. Um, it's fascinating to, to live in a time now where I get to turn around and, you know, I cuddle with my 10 year old boy and I like, I talk to him and we have great deep conversations and he cries and I hold him and it's just a very, it makes me feel maybe there's a chance to participate in a tribe that I never got to participate in. Yeah. You know what? That work is the biggest work anybody can do. Honestly, just when, when you have children, just allowing them to understand that it's so big. And yet, you know, people kind of go, oh, you know, this, make sure they get a career. It's like, you know, connect them to their bodies, to their emotions, because there is an epidemic of, of uh, depression among young children. And I think a lot of it, and it's getting younger and yes, social media and whatever, but what if you do do what you're doing, which is yes, everything should be honored. It takes it takes so much pressure off, especially young men. I I really really feel specifically badly having raised young men, uh, badly for for young men because they they often are not allowed. And I, and I think this generation is different. Uh, maybe I'm sitting in Toronto and it's very, but you know they they there's different conversations they're having, which is great. But still, you know the the work starts with the parents. And if the parent isn't connected, the best work you can do, and this is why Jung always went uh, on and on about how the unlived life of the parent is the greatest danger to the child. The greatest work you can do is to work on yourself in those ways. Connect to your body, connect to your feeling state. Because then the, the child, look, the child sees right through your words. You, know, you can be lecturing at them and they know how you're behaving, right? So if you're not doing the actual work, it's apparent to them and they'll call you out in about a second and a half. So yeah, doing that work is the best thing you can do to them and to the world. Honestly, this extends to everybody you meet. Because you don't get as judgmental. You just understand, okay, well, that that part of me is there. <laughs> and I totally understand why you might be in a rage right now. I may not want to deal with it that way, but I understand. And I don't immediately get into the, uh, you know, cut this guy off or put him away or some of the stuff you see on social media, which is really distressing because it's so lacking in compassion. And I think the one thing we might be able to agree with, that's the big word, right? Compassion. And compassion starts with you understanding the parts of you that need attending. And then I think it's easier to be compassionate towards others. I mean, that's the way I look at it. Yeah, it's uh, earlier I was saying the quote about you you put the glasses on and then you can never take them off. Yeah. But the other part of that is you can't put them on other people. And what that means is that if you have them on and you know that they don't, then you hold the responsibility. Absolutely. Yeah. That's this thing about, you know, you focus on yourself and you fix the world. That's how you do it is is because you focus on yourself. And if you do it long enough and with enough heart or like enough true intent, then you'll develop compassion for other because you will others because you'll see that they don't see. And by the way, that does affect the other person. It does. I see it on social media all the time. You probably have seen this too. Somebody responds really nastily to a comment and the other person comes in and says, no, no, I didn't mean that. I meant it this way. I'm sorry. And the other person says, oh, I'm really sorry. I didn't, I took it the wrong way. It is one person coming forward and saying, oh, I apologize. I didn't see it that way. And that seems to have been lost in a lot of people, right? Uh, because you want to, you want to be right. I, I love, uh, I love Ram Das, and he probably was quoting somebody else who used to say, uh, "Do you want peace or do you want to be right?" And there, that is the choice, right? Oftentimes, it's like you'll hold on. The ego loves to hold on to its identity to, and to its opinions, uh, but yeah, it's a trade-off. <laughs> You're not going to get the peace. And so when I see that, I think, "Oh, okay, this is the way to behave." Because you know, I've had people throw things at me on my Twitter account, and I think, "Ah," oh, and then sometimes I've even responded immediately, deleted. Like I have to get it out, or I write it out now, and I don't send it. <laughs> and then I think, "I let it go." I mean, really, at the end of the day, what, is this going to matter ten years from now? No. So it's it's fine. Yeah, absolutely. To wrap this up, I have a couple of really, really simple questions for you. But one of them is just, you've already named, um, you you named one person, Ian McGilchrist, I think. McGilchrist, yes. Uh-huh. McGilchrist. But is there anybody else um, that you would, who are you reading right now or who would you recommend uh, for interesting topics, interesting depth into these subjects? Oh my God, who am I not? Okay, so uh, the, the one that I'm reading right now is the new book by Gary Sparks, uh, published by Inner City Books. And I will send you the link after uh, because I'm having a heck of a, mind cramp and what the name of it is, but it's fabulous for anybody who is really interested in Jung's work. What Gary Sparks is trying to do is not only tell you how Jung's thought developed in an easy to understand way, by the way, because I think Jung can, you know, get a little bit unintelligible to some people. Um, and more importantly, he is going to address the later works, the works that I find fascinating. Ion, uh, which is, you know, 
a lot of young people don't even want to mention sometimes because it is it gets into some complicated uh, places uh, and in uh, the one in alchemy mysterium. And so he's looking at a lot of the later, the really radical young, the young after the heart attack where he he said, I don't care. I'm just going to come out and write. And, and so I, I'm he's a great guide and I, and I highly recommend it. And I wish I could remember the title, but it is Gary Sparks and it is um, published by Inner City Books. And I will send you so you can put it in the notes afterwards. Uh, so that's what I'm reading right now. I, I recently, Ima Gilchrist's book, The Master and His Emissary, I did a whole group session where we looked at that. And we looked at a book that was published years ago by Leonard Schlein called The Alphabet Versus the Goddess. Have you heard about this? I have not, no. Okay, so those two books are are just just we were thinking about that in terms of how just how looking at the human brain, which by the way is also mapping evolution in a way, the story of, of the human. So those two I, I uh, recommend. And then of course I, I don't know I read so many things at the same time. I'm very disorganized in my reading. Are you like that too? <laughs> no, I, yeah, I have an office. I'm here in my office here, and yeah. I've got a stack of books. Yes. And then I go home, and there's a stack of books next to my bed that I fall asleep with. So yep, that's, that's, that's me how I too. Live. Yeah. So I, I can't yeah. sometimes even remember what I'm doing or where I'm <laughs> heading, and sometimes I have seven tabs. And they're different books yeah, yeah. because I I can no longer house any more books. So I have to do them all on ebooks. So anyway, it gets it gets complicated at, at times. But uh, yeah, that's what's in my. But that Gary Sparks book, I, I highly recommend to young and oriented people who really want to uh, read something. Okay, very cool. And then you, um, you obviously you've written some of your own books, and then you've got your podcast. You're one of my favorite social media follows as oh, well. Thank you. Um, do you want to just where can people find these things online? All right. So my latest novel, which actually, by the way, it was my way of uh, uh, addressing everything we talked about, but hiding it in a love story. It's kind of ironic to be talking about love the whole time. Oh, yeah, but, yeah, but, 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 but I understood, I understood, uh, Josh, that the way to get people to read is to trick them, not tricking them. It is a love story, but in the midst of it, I, there's... I actually recreated 10 podcasts where people are discussing, just like we discussed, just big issues. Um, and that's called Invocation. And that's available everywhere, Barnes & Noble, um, Amazon, uh, every every uh, bookstore. And uh, yeah, the, the the podcast is called Gatherings. And um, what you that's a, a musician, Jay Redelsberger from Oklahoma. And he and I started connecting through Twitter. And we just really like talking about Jung because his background. But actually, we're now branching out. And we're going to do a lot more on just books, like what we talked about today, just books I want to recommend, and music and how it connects to our creative process. Because I think that there's the question I get most asked, I don't know if this happens to you, is what books should I read? Yeah. Uh, give me a list of 100 books. And I, I I don't like lists because you have to give context, right? So what we're gonna, what I'm going to try to do with that is give context. Say these are the books that you should read, but here's my argument as to why. And then you can decide, you know, do you want to read them or not? So, yeah, so that's what's on. And then on tw my Twitter handle, my Instagram, everything is Sophia Cycles uh, everywhere and Facebook everywhere. And I post different things on, on different places. So, yeah. Cool, cool. And then in the podcast, is it his music? Like when you guys it are talking? It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, think, yeah. I, I like the music. way you guys do that. It's yeah, it's yeah. pretty cool. Like it, it's like a nice little interlude between different topics. So yeah. the way you guys do that is great. So. Well, I I love his music and I thought, hey, let's put it out there because you know how hard it is for musicians to be heard. And it just and I thought, well, this is one way, right? You embed it in the podcast. So it's been one of the nice things to be able to share that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, very cool. I think it's awesome. And I, I well, think everything you. you're doing is great. And well, thank you. Just like, uh, just like you were saying, I think that the way that you're willing to open up, share yourself, put out into the collective unconscious, like what you are learning and experiencing, I think it's, it's really great. And I think you're doing a, a wonderful job. So thank you. Well, thank you. Lovely to hear. Thanks for coming on. Bye everybody. Thank you for listening to the Explorer Poet Podcast, exploring the blurry line between our physical world and our abstract realities. I hope you find this and every episode worthwhile. To find links to my guest websites and social media accounts, and for all Explorer Poet content, please visit my website, explorerpoet.com. You can also follow on Instagram at explorerpoet or on Twitter at explorerpoetpod. If you have comments or suggestions, please send an email to explorerpoet at gmail.com. Please follow and rate the podcast on your favorite app. And if you really, really want to be supportive, please share an episode with a friend. Thanks again.